Well, we continue along in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we have arrived this morning at chapter 2. And our passage this morning specifically, uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 10. Again, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is God's word. Please listen to it attentively. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, for mine, to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this portion of your holy word, we ask, O Lord, for wisdom. We pray for guidance. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to consider the freedom that we have in Christ. And we ask, O Lord, that you would keep in mind, help us to keep in mind, the responsibility that that freedom entails. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul, by one scholar, has rightly been called the apostle of the heart set free. And you can see that in this passage. For the first time in the letter to Uh, his letter to those Christians in the churches of Galatia, he says this word, freedom. And in fact, Paul uses the word free or freedom 11 times in this letter. And when you consider all of the uses of the word freedom and free in the New Testament, the vast majority are used by the Apostle Paul. He is indeed the Apostle of the heart set free. He's the, the man who... We owe much, humanly speaking, for our concepts of freedom. And even, I think, in this nation of ours, the nation of civic freedom, the nation of the freedom that we enjoy as a result of our Constitution, much of that goes back to this biblical concept of freedom that Paul and others in the Bible expounded upon and revealed through the Holy Spirit. You see, for Paul, freedom is obviously an important concept. 
for him and have, for his understanding of Christianity. And as Americans, we like to think we know a little something about freedom. And we should. We should know a little something about freedom. But have you ever found the definitions that you are given by our society, the definitions of freedom, have you ever found those to be trite, to be lacking, to be less than what they really should be? How many commercials have you seen that reduce the freedoms we enjoy down to a choice between two cell phones or between a car, one car and another? You see, the freedoms that we enjoy in this country are much greater, they're much deeper, they're much more profound than simply a choice between a cell phone or the, a red car or a blue car. If you look at the Constitution, if you look at the Bill of Rights, you see that we have the freedom from tyranny and from oppressive government. We have the freedom of religious expression. We have the freedom of speech. The Constitution is full of freedoms that we enjoy as American citizens. Well, if we have dismay at this lack of understanding of civic freedom, how much greater should our dismay be? When we look at ourselves as Christians, and we begin to realize that our concept as Christians and the freedom that we enjoy as believers in Christ, that, that understanding is so limited. How great should, I, should our dismay be? Most of the time, we as Christians hold to this freedom in Christ as being simply a matter of doing whatever you want without constraint. And so much, it seems, in our society today, that, that's the case. Now that you're saved, you're free to do what you want. No rules, no regulations, whatever. Have fun, go enjoy. Well, the fact is, if most Americans are poor citizens of this country because they fail properly to grasp their freedoms, then most Christians are even poorer citizens of your heavenly country. Because you fail to grasp your true freedom in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so I believe as you look at this passage, you can see the point, the thrust of Paul's message is this. That the truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has set you free. The point of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ has set you free. And you are free indeed. Well, let's look at this. I've divided this passage into three sections. The first is the first few verses up to Jerusalem. Up to Jerusalem. Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And then I want to look at this concept of freedom a bit. And I'll look at that in two parts. We'll look at it as freedom from. And then in the third point, we'll look at freedom Two, and you'll understand that a bit more, I think, as we get into the passage. But let's first look at this first section, up to Jerusalem. Well, as you can see from the very beginning of this letter, we looked at this at the beginning of March, and you see that Paul has launched into a defense of his apostolic ministry. He has launched into a defense of the gospel that he proclaims. He spent the entire first chapter defending his ministry and his apostolic authority. Well, in chapter 2, he takes a slightly different tack. The verses he, we consider today, Paul changes his focus to a different issue. It seems that he has been accused of a number of things. 
And in the passage today, it seems that he's being accused of deviating from that message that he is said to have received from the apostles in Jerusalem. And we dealt with that a few weeks ago. Was the message from Jerusalem, was it from men, or was it from the Lord Jesus Christ? And we discovered and determined that, based on what Paul has said, it was a message that was revealed to Paul by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. The gospel that Paul proclaims, the gospel that he delivers to the Gentiles, is a message he received directly from the risen Lord. They've been saying lots of things about him. And now they're saying, well, he's deviated. He went to Jerusalem and they told him he needed to circumcise Gentiles, but he's deviated from that. So don't you see, you Galatian churches, you Christians in Galatia, you Gentiles, you first got to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And so they were seeking to force these Gentile Christians to be circumcised, to adhere to the ceremonial law, to adhere to, to food laws, those kosher laws. Well, in verse 1 of our passage, he says, Paul says, he went up again to Jerusalem after 14 years. And he's likely referring to 14 years after his conversion, just as in the passage before he referred to going up three years after his conversion. Now he's speaking 14 years. So we're looking at a time frame of around A.D. 46 to 48, somewhere in there. After 14 years of missionary work, after 14 years of being on the road, of proclaiming the gospel that was given to him, Paul returned to Jerusalem with Barnabas and with Titus. In verse 2, he says that he went up to Jerusalem. Why? Why? Because of a revelation. It's as if he's answering this accusation that he was summoned to Jerusalem by the leaders there. And he's saying, no, it was a revelation that drew me to Jerusalem. And he says that he went there to lay out, the purpose was to lay out his gospel. He says in verse 2, I wanted to present this to those in Jerusalem to see if I'd been running this race in vain. He was not ordered to come to Jerusalem by the pillars, he uses that word later on, by the pillars, those whom his accusers regarded as being on a higher spiritual plane. He came because the Lord commanded him to go. Paul uses an interesting phrase in verse 2, and he repeats it later. He says, to those who seemed influential, he gave his gospel. He gave an account of what he'd been saying. And he uses this phrase again in verse 6, in what appears to be a harsher tone. Those who seem to be influential, what they were, makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. What's going on here? Is Paul coming down? Is he, is he being sarcastic? Toward those, to, we find out later that it's James and Peter and John. Is he being sarcastic? Is he using this phrase in a sarcastic tone? He uses the same, a similar phrase in verse 9. He says, James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars. Well, it is possible, and it's even likely, that Paul is reminding the Galatians of the Judaizers' own words. And he's using their, their words against them. It is doubtful. That Peter, James, and John were encouraging this, but it appears that a special prestige, a special, special position had been placed upon these men by the church. They were regarded as being on a higher plane. They were regarded possibly as approaching divinity because of their years of walking in person with Christ. And Paul seems to be throwing that back. And what does he say? He says, 
They added nothing to his ministry. They added nothing to his, to his message. He says, in fact, that they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and to Barnabas. They, tr- they treated Paul as an equal. He's answering this accusation that Paul has deviated against, away from the message that the pillars of the church had given him. This man of lesser authority. And he's gone on his own way. Paul is addressing this. And you see that instead of subjecting Paul to their perceived superior status, that he treated them, they treated him as an equal. Added nothing to his ministry. Well, let's look at freedom from, this idea of freedom from. The next two points hinge on two prepositions, from and to, which are implicit in any discussion of freedom. In verse 3, Paul uses the example of Titus, a Gentile Christian, to demonstrate the Christian's freedom from observing the ceremonial law, the freedom from the need to be circumcised. Paul says that at this meeting with Peter, James, and John, Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile, was present. And he was not forced to be circumcised. He was not made to be circumcised. You see, Paul's argument is that circumcision was a necessary part of becoming a Christian, as the Judaizers were saying, the party of the circumcision. Then the so-called pillars of the church missed their perfect opportunity. They missed their chance to have Titus circumcised and so demonstrated to the Gentile church that this was the norm, this was the way it was supposed to be. Paul says in verses 4 and 5, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield its submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, these false brothers had at some point sneaked in to witness the freedoms that the Gentile Christians were enjoying. And they did not like what they saw. They saw that in these churches, these Gentile churches, there were Jews there and there were Gentiles who were not circumcised. They witnessed that they were not observing these kosher food laws. They were rubbing elbows with, the, with those of the circumcised, of the Jews. And instead of rejoicing in their freedom, Paul says the Judaizers wanted to put them right back into slavery. They wanted to throw the yoke of slavery right upon their necks. The freedom that the Gentiles enjoyed was a threat to these false brothers. It was a threat to the order that they had established. Well, to help us understand our freedoms in Christ, let us look at the freedom that we enjoy as citizens of this country. And I've sort of painted that picture for you earlier in the, in the introduction. So often in Americans' limited understanding of democratic freedom, democratic freedom, we simply think of it as being free to do something, right? Isn't that what we, isn't that what we believe? You are constantly told that you are free to choose. You are free to follow your heart's desires. And quite honestly, you are mostly told these things by marketers who want you to follow your own selfish desires, to buy their product. And it's a desire that they have created in your own heart. They create a desire. They create a perceived need. And then they say, you're free to follow it. 
But you see, in discourses about freedom in this country, we rarely hear about what we are free from. What are you free from in this country? As citizens, what are you free from? Read the Constitution. Read the Bill of Rights. You are free from the tyranny of a dictator, of a repressive monarch. You are free from being taxed without being represented in your government. You are free from having to worship in a state-controlled church. You are free from illegal search and seizure. You are free from being forced to give members of the military room, a room in your house, from being forced to feed them at your own expense. You are free from these and many other unjust actions on the part of your government. And there are many people throughout the world who do not enjoy these freedoms. And so we should not take them for granted. It must be said that the freedoms given to us in this country are truly great freedoms. But it must also be said that you can live in perfect accordance with the freedoms that our Constitution allows you. You can walk in perfect freedom as far as our government is concerned and still be in total bondage. How is that? Well, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't know what it means to be free. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the democratic freedoms you enjoy in this country can themselves become a snare to you. And they have to millions and millions of people. Your freedom will only amount to living out your selfish desires, which will ultimately result in your destruction. But look at what you are free from if you know and trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it. Paul says in Romans 6.22 that you have been set free from sin. You have been set free from sin. It no longer has power over you. It no longer oppresses you like a tyrant. How often when you reflect upon and confess your sins do you consider how you have been set free from your bondage to sin? You no longer are compelled to sin by your sinful nature. You are free not to sin. Can you believe that? Did you ever think a day was imaginable? You are free not to sin. Now that does not mean that you won't sin. But it means that you can choose not to sin. You have also been set free from the guilt of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8 that the day, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be guiltless. You stand before your holy judge. And instead of declaring you to be guilty, he has declared you in Christ Jesus to be righteous. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone, as our shorter catechism puts it. What's more, you are free from the condemning wrath of God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that you are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You are free from God's wrath. You no longer have to fear God's anger toward you for your sin. In addition, you are free from the curse of the moral law. Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
All of those curses that you read about in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy have been lifted for you if you are in Christ Jesus. You no longer have to fear them. They are no longer a curse to you. But what else can we say? We can go further. You have been freed from bondage to Satan. Jesus describes those who are not his people as having Satan as their father. You are no longer Satan's slave. You don't belong to him anymore. Colossians 1.13 says that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. You have been freed from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. We can cry out with Paul, Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And if all these freedoms weren't enough, Jesus has freed you from being controlled by the opinion of others. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 29, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? The Lord has written the law on your own hearts. If the Bible doesn't expressly prohibit it, and the law of the land doesn't prohibit it, then your conscience cannot be bound by another person. Now, that does not mean that you can run willy-nilly down the streets, as we'll see later. We'll look at this. It doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. But it also doesn't mean that someone has the right to constrain your conscience if the Bible is silent on it and if the law of the land doesn't prohibit it. You have freedoms. By having faith in Christ, you have been set free from your enslavement to all of these things. It is a freedom that you enjoy. Well, let's look now at freedom two. Freedom two. Paul says in verse six that the three pillars, Peter, James, and John, added nothing to me. The gospel he had preached for 14 years without consultation was the same as theirs. And this was proof that Paul's message was of divine origin. It was exactly the same as the message of those who had been called to preach to the Jews those who had walked with Jesus. And he goes on to say in verses 7 through 9 that when they saw that he had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the Jews, and when they perceived the grace given to him, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. Rather than feeling some sort of competition with Paul, Peter and James and John welcomed him as a brother. They put no constraints on his gospel message. They offered no fine points of criticism. They didn't seek to direct his missionary activities. They sent him out with their blessing. They only made one request. And this was not a constraint. It was not a requirement. It was a request. In verse 10, we read that the only thing they asked was that he and Barnabas remember the poor. And Paul says that this was the very thing that he was eager to do. The Lord had placed it on his heart. And this brings us to this last point. As Christians, you are free to do a variety of different things. Different things that you were not free to do before you knew Christ. Now, invariably, when you think of having the freedom to do things, you start to look like libertines. You start to think about how you can do whatever. Your flesh is always going to want to push you to the limit, beyond the limit if you allow it. Sinful human beings naturally want to cast off anything that constrains them. 
even if these things lead to their destruction. But Paul is not talking about that kind of freedom. He's talking about the freedom that you have as believers to want to do good. You want to do what's right. And you've never truly wanted to do this before you were a Christian. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it well. You are free to yield obedience unto God, not out of slavish fear, but out of a childlike love and a willing mind. You see, you have been adopted as God's sons and daughters. And as his children, you seek to be obedient children. You want to please your heavenly father. You want to please your father because you love him. But before you were a Christian, you'd never had this freedom. You never had the freedom to love God. Sinful human beings do not naturally want to love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. You do not, by nature, want to love your neighbor as yourself. But you have been given a new nature in Christ. The Holy Spirit has given you new desires. You have been adopted, as we said. Because of this adoption, because the Holy Spirit lives in you, the law of God has been written on your hearts. And so you are free to obey it willingly and lovingly. Your desire will be to keep God's law, His moral law, the Ten Commandments. This is His revealed will for you. You'll have a desire to do this. You want to be pleasing to Him. And you do this not because it will earn your salvation. Not because it adds to your righteousness. Simply because it is the response of a loving heart that has been set free. You seek to be an obedient child of your heavenly Father. You have been granted the freedom to obey. Also, you've been granted the freedom to come to the throne of the Almighty God. Can you imagine this? You who did not have access to the throne. You did not have access to the Holy Lord. You've been given this freedom. Romans 5 verse 2 says that through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You do not need me. You do not need a priest. You do not need the blood of bulls and of calves to come before the Lord. You can come to him on your own through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Your only priest is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it is by his sacrifice of himself that you gain access to the throne of God. And as Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, you can boldly come to the throne of grace because you have a great high priest who sits at the right hand of God the Father. As Christians, you do have the freedom to choose because you have been given a new nature. You've been given a new heart. You have the freedom to choose not to sin. You have the freedom to truly love the Lord your God and to truly love your neighbor. You never had these freedoms before you were a Christian. But all of these freedoms from, all these freedoms to, are non-existent if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 and 17 and 19, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And he says, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, we are hopeless. 
If there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, then you are still enslaved to sin. You have no freedom at all. But we believe that he has been risen, don't we? People all over the world today are celebrating his resurrection. In fact, we celebrate his resurrection every single Lord's Day. That is why the Christian Sabbath was moved from the seventh day to the first. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every week. And it is because without the resurrection, we have nothing and we are nothing. The promises of the Bible are not true if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead. You see, to deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is to deny that he has the power over sin and death. It is to deny that you can be given true freedom. And for many, many people, the resurrection is just too hard to believe. And so they come up with all kinds of explanations for the empty tomb, don't they? But you cannot have true faith in Jesus Christ if you deny that he was raised from the dead on the third day. If you have any hope of true freedom, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins. You must confess before God and man that only Jesus Christ can save you from your sin and from the punishment that your sin deserves. Only Jesus. You have no hope apart from him. And when you have done this, when you have professed your faith, when you have turned in repentance away from your sin and to the Lord, then and only then can you have true freedom.